Thanks for the worship this morning. Did anyone else uh, have a special sort of, uh, I don't know, little nostalgic walk through the through the uh, doxology this morning? We haven't sung it in a long time. It's fun to do that. Um, I, I must admit that I've uh, probably never sung all the verses of the doxology. I've sung the verse, first verse hundreds, maybe thousands of times, but the rest of those verses, I was struggling to keep up, trying to keep track of what was going on. I don't like that. I like kind of knowing where I'm at, where I'm going. As I told you before, I like maps because they orient me to where I am. I'd rather look at a big map of a city that I'm going to be traveling in than a little screen that says, in two miles, turn left. Because I'm just not sure they know where they're going. It's Google after all. What do they know? I was with a good, uh, a good group of people, people I love, people I enjoy being with. Um, we were out doing something we enjoy. We were up at near Pinecrest Lake on Highway 50, and uh, we were just going on a hike. We were trying to find a route to perhaps do a, back, uh, a backpack trip, and we had gone across uh, 50 from the lake on the other side. We had heard about some trails over. We actually had seen them on our topo map. And so we were wandering out through there um, looking for the right path, looking for a place where we might take a group of of kids uh, backpacking. At the time I was a kid, I was probably about 17. I didn't think I was a kid. If you're 17, you're a kid. Don't ask, just admit it. But I was there with a couple of guys who were older. Um, uh, Jim was one of them. Jim was probably at the time in his mid-30s. And we started out through the through the trees on this path. It's a pretty straightforward path. You cross the road. There's a road that goes into a dirt road and a gravel road, and you turn off to the left. And we turned out off to the left, and we just started uh, toward the west, walking, following this path. It was getting late in the day, but it wasn't. We weren't going all the way to the end of the path. We were just kind of see if it was an okay path to take a group on. And um, we're just walking along, enjoying the day, the, the day, kind of as it's cooling off, summertime, and. You know, the mountains, the breezes start to pick up and it starts to become more comfortable to walk. And we didn't have any backpacks. We didn't bring anything with us because it's just going to be a short hike, just a little trip out and trip back. And uh, so we got out about as far as we thought we should go. Now, we had been traveling along a path, a well-worn backpacking path. You know, there are those dirt stretches that run through the forest. And as we're we're going along, we get out to where we found a lake. Not the ultimate uh, place where we were wanting to find where we would eventually go with a group of, of teens, but uh, a lake that would be nice to have along the way, nice place to stop with the kids. It's just a little mountain lake. We spent a little time there, kind of looking around, seeing if uh, this would be a good stop. It wasn't really much. It wasn't, there was really no intention of being there long, but we, we were there a little longer than we expected, and the sun got a little lower than we expected. And as we turned and headed back on the path, the path was a little harder to find than we'd expected. And the trees were dense enough that simple orientation by finding the North Star was nearly impossible. And so we were lost. I hate being lost. I've been lost only a few times in my life, but I hate being lost. The sense of not knowing where I am or how to get to where I want to be, it, it frightens me and it frustrates me. I feel how foolish of me to have gotten myself lost. And I remember the, this particular incident 
trying to keep a good face on the whole time. You know, I'm 17. These other guys are older than me. I don't want to be the scared guy. And so I remember trying to just stay, you know, I'm cool with it. We're, we're, we'll find our way. Not a problem. All the time inside, I'm thinking, oh, how dumb can it be? Didn't bring a compass. Didn't bring the map along. Oh, no. We, we're doing a really good job with this leadership task today. And we started back away from the lake in the direction we thought was the direction we were supposed to be going. But as the forest engulfed us, our doubts grew. And pretty soon, I think it was Jim first, admitted, I'm not sure we're on the right path. I'm not sure we are where we should be. And I'm not sure this path is going where we want it to go. And it was getting darker and darker and darker. And this was one of those great patches of, of Sierra Nevada forest that has truly grown over you and has truly enclosed you. You're walking basically through a tunnel as you go down this path. And we just kept looking at the path and hoping it was the right path. Putting one foot in front of the other and hoping that at least if the path was not the right path, it would come out to somewhere where a path should lead, where we would find our location on a map or on a road or something that was reasonably understandable. Maybe we'd break into a clearing and be able to find the North Star and then at least be able to orient which direction we were headed. We knew that when we came, we turned left. We knew that we had crossed the road, basically heading north, and we had turned to our left. We knew that if we went back and then turned to our right, we should get to the right spot. It was probably not more than 30 or 45 minutes of that disoriented, frightened-ish, frustrated feeling of being lost. But here I am. Over 40 years later, and it's still there. We were actually on the right path the whole time. We just didn't know it. Because the forest had become so dense that we couldn't figure out our orientation. We couldn't pick anything to sort of tie our direction to. I don't know very much about the stars, but I can find the Big Dipper. And if I can find the Big Dipper, I can find the North Star. If I can find the North Star, I can orient myself north, south, east, west. I can figure that out. With that overcovering of trees, there was no way to orient. Without a compass, there was no way to orient. I have a compass in my watch. I have a compass in my pocket of my phone. I have compasses coming out of my ears at the present. Nothing then. I want to talk to you today about this passage that we use. And I think we use it wrong most of the time. It's a statement from Jesus in John 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It actually is preceded by, if you are my disciples and you abide in my words, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So get the first half, the first point, is abiding in my words will help you discover the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth is an orienting thing. North is north, and north is north, and north is north, and south is south, and south is south, and south is south. There's no way to, to make south north, or west, or east. It's just south. South is south, or north is north. And it orients you to have some fixed point by which to discover your direction. Remember, I've told you before that that's north right there. If you're looking in that corner, it's, it's, it's pretty north. Maybe a tiny, a few degrees off, but if you want to know where north is, it's over in that direction. So if north is there, we're south. Over there. Okay, so now you're oriented, right? 
You got north, south, east, and west figured out. East, west, north, south. You're good. Those of you who are going like this, get a compass. But in this passage, it says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know what we were looking for that night when we were struggling along that path? We were looking for a little bit of truth. We were looking for some fixed point to measure by. Some fixed point. Even if we had realized we were going the wrong direction, at least we would know we were going the wrong direction. The worst part about walking along that dark path was that we didn't know whether we were going the right direction, the wrong direction, close to the right direction, close to the wrong We didn't know anything about where we were going. We were just keeping moving. This is how people get lost desperately, actually. The people you, you hear of that were, that were miles off the road on a, on a little quarter-mile hike, they kept walking in the wrong direction for too long. We luckily were walking in the right direction. And stumbled onto the fact that we were in. We were actually not as lost as we thought. We stumbled onto the truth about ourselves. I think the first thing you should know about the truth you should discover is the truth about ourselves. The first orienting truth is the truth about ourselves. So, what is the key piece of that truth? God is God. And I am not. It was this, it's the problem in the Garden of Eden, right? The problem in the Garden of Eden is this, is a statement. You could be like God. And she said, that sounds cool. I'm in for that. No, you can't be like God. You are only like God in the manner that God created you to be like God. You cannot take his place. You can't, you can't become the driver of your own life. You can't be in charge of your own salvation. You can't be in charge of, your, of where you're going to end up. You are not God. God is God, and you are not. First piece we all should learn. Orienting fact number one, truth number one. God is God. I am not. You got it? You sure? Because not many of you are participating right now. God is God and I am not. Yes? Okay. We're clear on that all the way to the back? All right. At least one of you nodded back there. Just because you're in the back doesn't mean you don't have to participate. What truth are we looking for? Some simple facts about what God is, who I am, and how that should orient my life, and how that does orient my life. I want to look at John 8, beginning of verse 23. This is J.B. Phillips. I don't like to quote people... I don't like to quote versions that are written by one person normally. I'm quoting this one as an exception today because I think he does handle this well. You belong to the world, but I do not. This is Jesus speaking. You belong to the world, but I do not. Does Jesus belong to the world? No. What does Jesus belong to? The Trinity, the family of God, to heaven. Remember John chapter 1, John started us out within the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Turns out the Word was Jesus. The active agent who spoke the things into existence on those, those days of the week, that was Jesus. You're of the world, I'm not. I was there at creation. I was the one who did the creation. I was the one who formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his mouth the breath of life, and he became a living being. He, your forefather was created by me. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God in human flesh. Here's God wrapped up in human flesh. It's orienting fact that God is God. 
It's an orienting fact that we're of this earth and God is not. Jesus is not. Jesus was a visitor. We're a resident. It's like a prison. We're in prison and Jesus came to visit. He's not a prisoner because he's visiting. He's in the prison, but he's not a prisoner. He's a visitor. He has a pass. It says visitor right on his little little shirt. And he can take his little visitor's badge. He can give it back to the officer in charge. And the officer will let him out. They don't let you out. Because you're a resident. He's just a visitor. God is God. I am not. We are of the world. We are of the earth. And he is not. That is why I told you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you understand that Jesus is God and not a human being, you'll die in your sins. The theological ramifications of this are huge. If Jesus is not God, then the death of Jesus was just another human sacrifice, just another virgin thrown into the volcano to appease the gods. But if he's God, everything changes. If God was willing to climb on the cross, though he didn't have to, if God God was willing to die on the cross, though he didn't have to, it's a whole different story. Because it's now not an appeasing sacrifice of a human being dragged out. It's not that Jesus was made to be placed on a cross. It's that Jesus has eternally existed as a co-regent of heaven, one of the Trinity, like God, as God. He has the mind of God and does the things of God because he is God in human flesh. God is God. I am not Jesus is God. And it changes everything. So the course correction, the the second course correction is, I'm not the good guy in the story. Anybody old enough to remember when every bad guy on a cowboy movie wore a black hat? It was great. It was easy to sort out the good guys and the bad guys. Black hats, white hats, black hats, white hats. Or black hat, gray hat, doesn't matter. Black hats were always the bad guys. And they had that sneer you know, maybe a little scar or something. They always looked to the part. Kind of gleeful when they're doing something evil. They had that gun that is just kind of long and greasy looking when they pulled it out. You just knew the bad guy when you saw the bad guy. You knew the good guy. You never, you never wanted to be the good guy, the bad guy. You were never the bad guy in these shows. You were always the good guy. And yet... We're not. We're not. We're not the guys in the white hats. We're not the rescuers in this story. We're the bad guys. Turn to your neighbor. Look them over carefully. They're the bad guys. They're sitting next to the bad guy. And if the bad guy's a girl, it doesn't matter. It's still the bad guy. Don't tell them. God is God, and I am not. He is good, and I am not. God is good, and I am not. Jesus is good, and I am not. You see, if Jesus was God and he died on the cross, because only God could stand in that substitutionary place for the creation that he had brought into existence on this messy little planet, 
And if he is good, and he died anyway, it changes everything. Theologically, if it is God who dies, and God is good, and Jesus is good, and he doesn't deserve anything that he took, it changes everything. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. How come? Well, because he is God, and he is good we are not God. We are not good. We're the ones who needed help. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The, the orienting truth in this story is simply this. I'm not the good guy. I'm the one who needs the help. I'm the one who needs the rescuing. I'm the one who needs repentance. I'm the one who needs to be restored. I'm the one who needs transformation. I'm the one who's likely to mess this whole story up. Anybody else get angst when the bad guy shows up in a movie? I get angst. I get angst especially when I can see somebody in the movie. I know it's just a script and people are just talking, but when I see somebody doing something stupid, I will talk to the, to the TV. Don't tell anybody you do that. I do it only as an illustration of us. I talk to the TV. I will tell them. I will tell the man who's listening to the woman who's saying the dumb thing, don't do it. Don't listen to her. I will say to her again, especially if it's one of those TV series where you see they're, they're, they're repeatedly doing something stupid. I will say again with the stupid thing. Come on. You can ask my wife. I get frustrated watching these TV shows where people do dumb things over and over again. It's the same dumb person doing the same dumb thing over and over. There's good guys and bad guys in TV shows because we couldn't handle it if it was really what it is. If it really represented us all the way we should be represented. If we could see the minds of all of us at once, we would know we're a mess. We're a complete and total mess. So as I'm walking through the woods of the world, course correction. Jesus is the good guy. God is God. I'm the bad guy, and I'm not God. I shouldn't be put in charge of anything. It's crazy that God trusts me. Verse 28, same chapter, John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will know that I am He. Notice the He is capitalized. When you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift up Jesus on the cross, then you will know that I am God. That the cross reveals some things about God. You know that it's true. It's why we talk about it. That's why we sing the old rugged cross. That's why when we talk about the cross, we've, we've taken this instrument of death and we've made it into a pillar that we turn to for strength. Because it was God on the cross, and the God who was on the cross was good, and His sacrifice was made for people like us who aren't God and who aren't good. He says, when you lift me up, when you see the cross, you're finally going to get it. You're going to know. You're going to know the truth. And oh, by the way, that'll set you free. It's reorientation. The man on the cross, Jesus is the good guy. I'm not. And God demonstrated his righteousness in Christ that day. Romans chapter 3 now. If you're following along in your Bible, Romans chapter 3, we're going to be starting at verse 23. 
Romans and Paul are trying to set the stage, trying to help us understand. They're the, they're the map key. You know what a map key is? I actually saw a person who's like 20 go like this. I am pleased with that. A map key is that little, little box, usually at the bottom, one of the corners of the map, that tells you what the things on the map represent. It'll show you the shapes of the highway signs. This is a, a, this is a national road. This is a local road. This is a state highway. This is a this. This is a that. It'll tell you that this much is a mile or this much is a mile. It's great. It helps you understand what you're looking at. As, as Romans 3 opens up, it starts to give you the pieces of the map, the keys to the orientation. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that true? Those neighbors you looked at? That's why they're not the good guy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that everybody? Is that really everybody? I ran into a guy once who told me he didn't think he'd ever sinned. You're right, he was wrong. It took a while. I had to explain to him. He had a different orientation to what sin was. He didn't think that he... If you don't kill people and rob banks, you're not sinning. So we kind of unpacked the story a little bit. I'm still not convinced that when I left, because I was doing Bible studies with this guy. He never invited me back after I told him he was actually a sinner. It was only like the second Bible study too. We're reading this passage, all of sin, that includes you. No? Yes. No. Then you don't understand sin. If, perchance, we allow ourselves to believe at all that we don't have a broken, sinful nature, We need to be reoriented to what sin really is. When Jesus describes sin in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said just thinking lustfully is a sin. Just thinking, thinking of your neighbor as a fool is sin. Just turning your heart toward those things that would be sin if you did them is in fact sin. How are you doing with sin? Anybody ever, anybody ever find yourself doing something really right and righteous and hoping somebody notices that's sin? crazy, isn't it? We carry it around with us. It's so prevalent. It's like breathing to us. It's just our normal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace, God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. I've inserted the word. Do you know what the translation here actually is? The word here that is translated propitiation, propitiation is to make to be made right with God. It's that that we've been set right. It's it's the the the, the account has been justified. It's that kind of thing. But the real phrase here is mercy seat, whom God set forth as the mercy seat by His blood. I want you to bring this big sanctuary system together in your head. 
Outside in the courtyard is the place where the offerings are burned. Remember? Remember that that's, that's where the cross is represented. It's out there in the courtyard where the cross is represented. The blood of Christ is spilled. The Lamb of God dies. That's where we represent and understand the cross to be. But this just said, no, you have to take the cross all the way through, through the holy, pa- holy place, past the table of showbread, past that veil that separates good and evil into the presence of God. And have you ever noticed that the Ark of the Covenant is covered with the mercy seat? It's a two-piece deal. It's an ark covered with the mercy seat. It's a, it's a box, the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of that box is the mercy seat. This passage is actually saying Jesus is the mercy seat. That by the sacrifice of his blood, by the, by the death on the cross, Christ became the propitiation or the mercy seat by his blood. Remember now, put, put some pieces, big pieces of the Bible to set together. The Bible says that Christ made a way into the holy of holies where there was no way for us because we are not the good guys. And we can't bring our sinful selves into the presence of God because of the wages of sin is death. We carry our sin in there. Poof! Brrr. We become a pile of ashes like a cartoon character. But because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, it's not an outside thing. We're not, we're not stuck out here in the courtyard anymore. You know, the courtyard was the only place that the regular person could go. The regular sinner in Israel just had to be out in the courtyard. They could never go any closer. They were never allowed to enter into the holy place because they weren't holy. Only the priests could go into a holy place because they had the, the holy coverings of the holy garments and the blessings of God and the, and the lineage of, uh, of the priesthood. They, they could go into the holy place. They were invited into the holy place, but the people, the regular, regular slugs like us were not allowed to. And so we never got past the outside court where the, where the sacrificial offering was made. We laid the hands on the, the lamb and we confessed the sins on the lamb. We slit the throat of the lamb. This is a personal deal. There's a clear picture here. The death of the lamb is caused by the sins of the man. The man kills the lamb in his own hands. It's as if the Bible is saying, it is in fact the Bible saying that the crucifixion is about us. It's caused by us. Can you take that? It's our fault. That's why they gave them the knife and made them hold the lamb's head up and cut the lamb's throat. So this became personal. It became theirs. If the sin was real, the sacrifice was real, the substitution was real. And they never got past that point. The priest then took the lamb, took the blood, Ministered in the sanctuary, ministered in the courtyard. Part of the lamb is burned on the altar. Part of it is burned outside the camp. And a substitutionary sacrifice was made out there in the courtyard, far away from the presence of God, deep in the sanctuary, beyond the holy place, into the most holy place, unreachable by all but the high priest and by the high priest only once a year. And here in Romans, the, 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 prophet is, or the, the apostle is saying, look, God made Jesus the mercy seat for us so that we could actually find our way into the very presence of God. 
The Ark of the Covenant is on the bottom. It's a box. The mercy seat sits on the top, a separate item. And over the top of the mercy seat, remember the angels are built onto the mercy seat with their wings spread out toward that glowing presence that is God, that glowing presence, the representation of God and the, the Shekinah glory in the middle. You and I in this passage are brought from the outer court into the presence right at the feet of God. When we use this word that nobody ever uses, propitiation, we lose it. Look in your Bible. Your Bible will probably have a little note that says mercy seat right here. The word's only used twice here and in Hebrews. Hebrews, it's translated mercy seat. Here it's translated propitiation because they wanted you to try to get the picture that everything was made right. Debts are covered. Things are cleansed. It's done. But this is, this is awesome, but it's not the end. The story goes deeper. Whom God has set forth as a mercy seat by His blood through faith, our faith in what He's done to demonstrate. Note the word to demonstrate. To demonstrate His righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's. He is the mercy seat for us by faith to demonstrate His righteousness, God's righteousness, because in His forbearance, In his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. So, back there when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they stood there, and they they answered the call of Satan to pretend that they were like God and ate the fruit that that was presented to them so that they could maybe attain something that would make them different and make them better. And as as they stood there in the garden, that first sin, the wages of sin is death. They should have died then, there, at that moment. But God, in His forbearance, protected them from suffering the wages of sin that they deserved in that moment. You get it? And it went from Adam to their children, 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 to their children. And they arrived out in the desert, having fled Egypt, and God built, had them build this, this sanctuary, this representation of how things worked with Him and them. And out there was that sacrificial offering place. And in here was this holy place where the provision of God was demonstrated. Light from the lamp. Food on the table of showbread. The, 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 the incense representing the, the connectedness we have with God via our prayers and through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the, the life that orbits around God with mankind knowing that He provides everything we need. That's that outer, that holy place. And then beyond that, a place where they couldn't go, separated by a mercy seat covering, separated by a merciful veil. The veil is not about separating us from God to punish us. The veil is about separating us from God to protect us. The forbearance of the thousands of years between Adam and today has always been a veil of separation to protect us from the wages of sin we deserved. And when Christ died on the cross, it demonstrated something about God. It demonstrated that He wasn't just letting it go. He wasn't just dismissing it. He wasn't just a codependent parent letting his kids get away with murder, literally. No. He was, from the beginning to the end, 
always aware of the cross. Remember, remember that the plan of salvation was laid down before the foundations of the world and that the death of Christ had always been on the table because of the sins of mankind. God's forbearance was not something that he was just letting people get away with. You know, people will say, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? The answer is because God is not man. Man is man. God is good and man is not. The problem with sin is not God. The problem with sin is man. If you want to blame God, you have to blame God for free choice. And if you want to blame God for free choice, you're in a whole different pickle. In Romans chapter 3, it says, God is demonstrating His righteousness because of His forbearance. God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. He has let all of this pass, knowing that the cross was coming. And the cross is the demonstration that God is righteous. It's a very important thing. It's a very significant demonstration because the last thing Romans tells us, the last thing Paul tells us is to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is not, God is not in the cover-up business. God is not in the cover-up business. He doesn't whitewash your sins. He doesn't paint the house and leave the dirt on the wall. God's not in the cover-up business. God's in the cleansing business. He said, what you need to understand about me is that I took the sin. I took it. It will take a lot, if not all, of eternity to sort out what that meant. As we understand what it cost Jesus, we know that he bears, he bears cross marks. He he bears the marks of the crucifixion, the scars of the crucifixion after his ascension. So after the resurrection, Jesus still carries those marks on him. And the cross demonstrated that God was not covering up sin. He was paying for it himself. That he might be just in justifying you and me that there would be no question about the character and the righteousness of God and the justice of God because the justice was met at the cross. And 1 John 1, 9 leaves us with, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's in one package in that one verse. If we confess our sins, what's our part? I'm the bad guy in the story, God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He will always do this. He is faithful to forgive our sins. And He is just. He has the right to forgive our sins because of the cross. For thousands of years... Adam and Eve sinned and God said, that's all right, I've got it. Their kids sinned and God said, that's all right, I've got it. And their kids sinned and 
that's all right, I've got it. And their kids sinned, and that's all right, I got it. And their kids sinned, and got that's all right, I got it. And some chose to trust him, and some didn't choose to trust in that. But he kept saying, that's all right, I got this. And then Jesus came down, lived on the earth, demonstrated the character of God in human flesh, walked among us, and died for our sins, though he was good and had not sinned. And he proved to anyone who wanted to pay attention that he had the right to forgive sin because he paid the price for it. You should know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Free from the guilt of your sin. Free from the binders that keep you walking in it. Free to experience the Holy Spirit's direction in your life. Free to boldly walk into the presence of God as a child of God and request of your Father His assistance. Because you know the truth about Him. You know that He is God. And you know that He loved you personally enough to pay for your sin. Let's pray. Father God, I understand in the tiniest way that this whole mess was created by me and by my kind. Today we can only ask for the forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing of the blood and the righteousness of Christ applied where the ugliness and the brokenness of who we are is real. We pray today that because we walk in imitation of Jesus, we might be a little better off that we might live and walk more like Jesus. We pray for the infilling of your Holy Spirit and the outpouring of that into other people's lives through your church in all of our brokenness. We thank you for inviting us into your presence today again. For coming in the cool of the day to walk in the garden with us, to offer us a relationship that is personal, unbroken, and covered by the blood of Christ. Amen.